Today's conference, this one this morning, is going to be on self-knowledge. How do we know ourselves? How do we know what our perfections are, what our defects are, and things of that sort? And so we want to take a look at this um, because it's necessary, As uh, starting with, even with Plato. Plato said, know thyself, or Socrates said, know thyself. Because in order to act prudently or to really know what you need to do, or what kind of life you're leaving, leading, you need to be able to uh, know yourself. St. Thomas says that prudence is knowing how to apply a general principle in the concrete circumstances. So it's the virtue that tells me the thing I'm supposed to do given the concrete circumstances. But he says something interesting. He says that in order for us to act prudently, we have to have a knowledge of our interior state in order so that we... Uh, in knowing that interior state, we know how we relate to certain things. So he says, for example, the person who has a problem with alcohol knows that in order for him to be prudent, when he's around the alcohol, he has to stay away or keep his distance. Whereas if he doesn't have that self-knowledge or understanding, then he's likely to drink the alcohol or put himself in an occasion of sin. And so this self-knowledge is very important. I think most people are not very prudent, uh, in part um, because of the fact that uh, we just don't know ourselves very well. I want to break down how we can know ourselves into essentially uh, two parts. The first is natural things. What are the things on a natural level <clears throat> that we can know or do to know ourselves? And then the second thing is uh, things on a supernatural level that we can do in order to come to knowledge of ourselves. Obviously, uh, one of the uh, great writings that um, I don't know if any of you have probably read, some of them here is what I'm sure is read, it's just called The Acting Person by St. John Paul II, right? And in that text, he talks about something which actually has its foundation in St. Thomas. But he fills it out a little bit, and he says, what we do, what we, how we act, determines our will and determines who and what we become and what we are. So there's two parts to that. The first is, is that I can determine what kind of an individual I am, whether good, bad, or what have you, by the actions that I perform. Which I think is ironic, because today you hear all sorts of people say, well, I'm a good person. Yeah, but you're living with your boyfriend. Yeah, but I'm a good person. Yeah, but you're committing adultery. But I'm a good person. You know, there's no concept of the fact that what they're doing makes them be a kind of individual. I mean, if you, if you set these people down and said, you're a fornicator, you are an adulterer, you're a thief, you're a liar, you're the, they would like, <laughs> even though that's what they're doing. Right? They, won't, they can't seem to make that connection. And I think there's a certain humiliation, even in our own reflection about our own defects and the sins that we commit. If we pay attention, if we pay attention to our actions or the sins that we commit and then translate that into, you know, when, I, when I'm uh, mean to people, well, I'm a cruel individual. You know, maybe there's certain things that we need to uh, appropriate 
because a lot of times we don't appropriate those things. We just kind of see ourselves acting externally, and we might even confess those things, but we don't really see ourselves in that context at times. Of course, then once Christ heals us and those things are forgiven, then we're not so much that, but we have to work on overcoming it. The second part, so the first part is, is that we can determine what kind of an individual we are. But the second aspect of the whole notion of the fact that how a person acts um, actually tells us uh, what's inside. What we do tells us, reflects on what's inside, and that's based upon the principle of resemblance. It's basically, there's different formulations of it, but like begets like. Or another way to put it is, the cause is always some way in the effect. So if there's some defect in me, it's going to show itself in my behavior in some way. Okay. So that means that I can kind of come to knowledge about myself by what I'm doing. Okay. And this means that doing a regular examination of conscience will help significantly in gaining a self-knowledge. When we commit sins throughout the day, but we don't really do a reflection on it on a regular basis, we tend to kind of forget a lot of the things that we're doing, and so we fail to understand who we are because we're not seeing ourselves reflecting upon who and what we are on a somewhat regular basis. So doing an examination of conscience is helpful. One of the things that uh, you have to find a priest who's willing to do it, but if you can do a general confession... For lay people, I usually recommend once every five years, and for priests and for religious, once every two years. And basically, a general confession is, is you sit down and you go through a thorough examination of conscience, and you examine all the sins that you've committed through your entire life. Now, there's two reasons for this. One is it's pretty humbling. And Leo the Leo the Tenth, Pope Leo the Tenth, said that we actually make reparation for the sins that we confess from our past life, even if they've been forgiven. But, the, but one of the things is, is it also tells us where we're at in our spiritual life. Have we made progress? Are we slipping back? Because we'll be able to look at, reflect upon, you know, and I've had a difficulty with this in the past, but now it's not so much, or I went through a period where I didn't have a problem with it, and now I do have a problem with it, etc. Okay. So this can be something that can be very helpful, making a general confession once in a while to give us a sense of who we are. Another thing that we can do is uh, kind of examine about which is, what's our disposition. Are we sanguine, choleric? Are we melancholic or what have you? Because that will also give you a sense of who you are to some degree. Okay. The other thing is, too, is, is it might be helpful. I should probably send it to you, but there is a list of virtues. There's 64, as I mentioned uh, in a conference the other day. There's 64 virtues, and going through those virtues can tell you a lot about yourself. Do I have this particular virtue now? One of the things that I and another psychologist developed was what we call the characterological study. And basically what it is, is it's a series of questions. And they ask you the questions about, you know, do you tend to know the right thing to do at the right time? Do you tend to remember the right, to do the right thing at the right time? 
when things happen, do you tend to forget the bad experiences you've had in the past? And things like this. And why are we asking these questions? These questions reveal whether the person actually has a specific virtue or not. Now, obviously, it's based on the person's own self-perception, but you would be surprised how accurate it can be. It's very ironic. People will say, oh, yes, I'm a prudent individual. But then you start asking about the eight integral parts of prudence, the sub-virtues underneath it. If you don't have one of these, you're not prudent. And you find out that most people admit they don't have most of them. So the point, even though they think they're prudent, and so there is kind of a veracity factor is what they call it in other kind of psychological tests. But this characterological study is very helpful, and it was actually developed for, uh, an anal- for uh, uh, men going into the seminary as a self-examination and for the people in formation to figure out where do they need to actually develop their, um, their personalities and things of this sort to give them a better sense of it. Because most of us tend to look at our sins or the good things we do rather than in terms of virtues and vices. In other words, do I have the habit of acting well in relationship to food or a particular kind of food? Do I have the habit of uh, being affable? That's going to be the next conference, the virtue of friendship. Am I affable to people? Do I tend to be act charitably all of the time? People don't, in other words, what are my habits? I need to look for my habits. Are they good or are they bad? If they're good habits, then I know I have a certain level of virtue. Now, one of the things we have to be careful about is appropriating our virtue and thinking uh, somehow or another that we're really good people, whereas we should really think in terms of how St. Augustine defined virtues. It's God acting in us without us. That's the infused virtues. And basically what that means is is that we need to see God's goodness in us and not appropriate it. But the point being is, is that part of self-knowledge is seeing how God has used or uses me as an instrument through virtues that I, ha- I might have. This is also an important point because sometimes our self-knowledge is actually based on two things. The first is our self-image. What is the image we use of ourselves? Is it the one we see in the mirror or is it something else? And this image changes and shifts around because a lot of stuff is added to it based upon our personal experiences in the past. So all the things I've gone through will affect this image that I have of myself. But there's a difference between an image and the judgment of the image. So uh, let me give you an example. My cousin, who has his doctorate in biochemistry, he can look at a chemical equation, and he and I have the same image. We see the same thing. But because he has the virtue of science in relationship to chemistry, he can look at that equation, and he understands something different than I do when I look at that same equation. Okay, The same is true about ourselves. When bad things happen to us, or when we do certain things, we have an image of those things that have happened to us. But how we judge ourselves, our self-concept, can be different than our self-image. In other words, we can see ourselves more authentically. So, for example, sometimes when bad things happen to people, it's easy for them to think of themselves as bad when in point and fact, because that's what's in their image. 
But in point of fact, if they have a proper self-concept, they realize, I didn't give consent to this, so it doesn't say anything about me as an individual, even though they recognize that's part of their past experience. Okay, why is this important? Because it tells us that we have to uh, make sure that our self-image and our, our, is true to reality, and that our judgment of ourselves, that self-image, is also true to reality, and that cannot come except through humility. So in other words, it's through humiliations that we begin to see ourselves. And this brings us to the next thing. How do I react to things? If I get humiliated, do I accept it cheerfully? Most people do not. You know, we often read about the saints, how they would actually enjoy, they take delight in the humiliation. What does that tell them about their virtue? Well, it basically means this. People tell me, well, it's painful for me to get humiliated, or it's difficult to pray. Well, okay, that just tells me you don't have much virtue. Because St. Thomas says that when we act contrary to our disposition or contrary to our virtue or vice, there's a certain pain involved in that process. So if I have uh, the vice of pride and someone humiliates me, which is an action contrary to my uh, pride, then there's a pain that I experience in that process. So as I work on being humiliated or humiliating myself, as I begin to work on that, over the course of time, my disposition changes and I start to develop the virtue of humility so that I start to see the advantage, what I'm gaining in that process. So once I gain a certain level of humility, when someone humiliates me, it's in congruity with the virtue and so there's a delight because he says virtue gives us a delight. This is how we know, for example, we have the virtue of mortification. Do you actually take delight in doing the things that mortify you? If you don't, it means you don't have much of the virtue. Whereas if you do have a lot of the virtue, there's an actual delight. You see this with people who fast on a regular basis. That there's actually a delight in the fasting. There's actually a delight in doing the mortification. Okay, and so this is one of the ways that we can tell something about ourselves. How am I reacting? Just watching how we react can tell us a tremendous amount about our virtue and our vice. When people say things negative to me, do I get angry? Okay, it tells me I don't have much meekness or I don't have much virtue of mortification. When I get around the chocolates, do I find my hand uncontrollably going to the chocolates and I start eating? Or do I, can I look at them and easily turn away from it? Because the virtue gives me detachment in relationship to my, the thing that is difficult. In other words, and that's another thing. If I have, uh, one of the things I can do is take an, take an inventory of what I'm attached to. How do I know I attach to it? If it gets hurt or if it's taken away or what have you, I get upset about it. Again, that tells me my virtue or my vice. Virtue is a strength. And it means that I can take something or leave it. Okay, so and analyzing our virtue, analyzing how I react to certain things, will tell me a lot about my virtue or vice in a particular area. How do other people see me? How do they see me react? Now, this has to be taken with a bit of warning. Sometimes people really don't grasp what's going on interiorly in us. And so we have to be careful about that. So it, on one level, how people, if someone reacts negatively to something I say, 
it can tell me either a lot about them or it can also tell me a lot about myself. But my natural reaction should be, or if I'm really trying to advance in my spiritual life, my first reaction should be to use the reaction to analyze whether there's something wrong in me, whether I need to work on something. I I think that one of the areas that people are extraordinarily blind to is the virtue of modesty. And I'm not just talking about how they dress. That's part of it. I'm talking about their speech and what we call comportment, how they carry themselves, how they behave. So, for example, you'll see this among certain traditional women. They'll dress very modestly, but when it comes to their husband, they will berate him and beat him to a pulp verbally. And yet they want to claim they have the virtue of modesty, which is completely contrary to the truth. Because as St. Thomas says, part of the virtue of modesty is, uh, he calls it equality to stable authority. What does that mean? It means that my actions fit the person I'm addressing. And so part of that is, is that when someone's an authority over us, that we treat them as a proper authority. One of the things that has flabbergasted me for the longest time or something that's really surprised me, and it's something I still have a hard time getting used to is, a priest is a priest. And it doesn't matter if he's a bad priest. He's still a priest. And so how you treat him has to be, how you treat him has to be, has to fit the, the dignity that he has as a priest. Okay, so he might be a bad priest, but the real thing that you're doing is giving honor to God who has represented him in the person of Christ. But it's the same thing with married women. If they recognize the fact that this is your husband, he's the head of the household, there, has, there should be a certain respect and honor that's given to that, but a lot of times it's not. Okay. So how, so how, but, and so the husband reacts, the wife will sit there and chew him out day after day after day, and then she wonders why he spends all the time in the garage and not in the house with her, okay? Um, And then she'll complain about he's spending all the time in the house, and there's no self-reflection. You see this also with certain men. They'll say things, and then they wonder why people are reacting. It's because men can be somewhat, uh, as we say in English, a bull in a china closet, they get in there and they're just destroying everything in the process and they don't even know they're doing it. Okay. But how, it's, you know, how other people see me, and so sometimes this is very important. This is one of the reasons why having a spiritual director is really important. Because a spiritual director is often going to see your patterns of behavior that you're not seeing. And a lot of times, too, I think that the mistake that people make is they see the thing they struggle with, and they focus on that. And legitimately, that's a problem, and we have to recognize that, and that tells me something about myself. But a lot of times, there's something underneath that that, that, that's a bigger problem. So, uh, for example, sometimes people might have a problem with chastity, but the real problem underneath that is pride. Or a person might have, um, as I've mentioned this to numerous people throughout the course of my priesthood, is something after I discovered, people might have a problem with anger, but the real problem is an inability to suffer well. It's a lack of mortification. 
Um, or it can just be pride too. They have to try and ask and get to the foundational thing. This is why Teresa of Avila used to say, pick, uh, you know, find the, your, uh, you know, work on your predominant fault. Why? Because virtues in, uh, uh, and vices, but vices more specifically will deal with that. Vices have what they call daughters. In Latin, it's filiae. Um, and the reason it's in the feminine is because of the fact that uh, the, ver- the vices are in the feminine. So they're daughters of particular vices. And what they mean is that there's certain effects. So a person who suffers from avarice, for example, will very often have the, the daughter uh, of that, which is the vice of cruelness or meanness to people. Okay. And so because so somebody who hoards something... They're willing to let other people suffer so that they can have their little thing. Okay. So what's this tell us? It tells us that a lot of times the thing that we see, you know, the fact that he's being cruel to other people, that's what he may be seeing. And he says, I need to be kinder. But the problem may be avarice. The same is true in relationship to our predominant defect. Now, we're going to see how we can discover that. But one of the ways is just being knowledgeable of the virtues and which and vices, and which vices tend to flow from other vices. Because a lot of times people say, well, how did you know to ask that question? Very simple. If you have this particular problem, it's a sign you have this one, usually. So, because they're all connected. All right. How, what, how do I find uh, interiorly, <coughs> when I'm performing particular kinds of acts, or when I'm doing certain things, do I find some things hard or do I find things easy? Because that will tell me whether I have a certain kind of virtue or vices. Okay. So those are some things that we can do just on a natural level. Sometimes asking other people, what do you see in me? You know, what do you see is my problem? Taking correction, seeing how I take correction can tell me how much humility I have, even when the correction's false. But other, part of it is, is looking at what people might be seeing in me. Because even if I don't have that problem, it could mean that I'm not, uh, I don't have the proper dispositions to show that I don't have that problem. Okay. What about on a spiritual or a supernatural level? Well, there's a few things. First, let's just back up a bit. There's three stages of the interior life. The first stage is the purgative way. And everything I've mentioned up until this point can be done in the purgative way. And you can come to a great knowledge about yourself. However, once people reach the fourth level of prayer, which is the prayer of simplicity, just before the fifth level, which is mystical contemplation, they've done pretty much everything they need to do on the active purgative level in order to eradicate certain imperfections. Then you have to enter into the passive purgative stage, and that's because our sin leaves disorders so deeply rooted in us, we can't fully get them out. And so God literally has to start pulling them out. He has to start sending tailored sufferings. He sends us very specific sufferings to begin rooting out this particular problem Okay, to the individual. And that passive purgative process continues all the way to the conforming union, which is the last stage of prayer before entering into mystical marriage, which is the transforming union. So it's a very long process. It continues all the way through the illuminative stage. However, when you get to that point where you start removing all your defects, something happens. 
we tend to know ourselves based upon the bad things that we do. And so as those start, things start to begin to be removed, we start to lose a knowledge of ourselves. We start to become blind. We don't really understand who and what we are. So that our self-knowledge starts to become stripped of us. The second component is, is we begin to see that really any good that we do comes from God. And God begins to hide from us any good in ourselves, specifically to keep us, to protect us from spiritual pride. So when you enter into that stage of the passive purgative way, or when you start getting right to the end of the active purgative way, people become blind to themselves. They can't see who and what they are. I have a woman that I'm working with in in a spiritual life who is fairly well into the passive purgative stage. She's well into there. And uh, I think I might have mentioned this to you. I've seen her go six months, or was it seven months, without committing venial sin. And most of the things she struggles with are defects. And God is allowing her to suffer tremendously to root out those defects. It's actually something admirable to behold. But she will often complain to me that she can't see herself. She doesn't know where she is. She doesn't even know how she's even relating to God. And I always tell her, well, that's okay. As long as I know where you're at, you're okay. Right. In other words, as long as I can see exactly where she's at in these stages, it doesn't really matter if she can see herself. In fact, it's better that she doesn't. So that process, that's why when you get to that stage, you actually need a spiritual director to be able to begin, begin to, sh- to start seeing what your patterns are so they can, and what your defects are so they can begin making recommendations so that you can continue advancing. This means that at that stage... A very consistent prayer life, meditation, doing regular meditation, will slowly give us a kind of a self-knowledge about ourselves because we'll begin through to see ourselves in prayer, how we relate to God, and God will be giving us graces. So the principal way that we are going to know ourselves at that stage, and even before, is through grace. Grace enlightens the mind and strengthens the will. And so one of the principal things it's going to do is enlighten our minds about ourselves. It's going to let us see something about ourselves that we hadn't seen before. And this this means that grace very often is the necessary thing to truly know what our predominant fault really is. To get that grace, I'll often recommend saying... Uh, or praying to Our Lady of Sorrows, specifically under that title. Pray to her and ask her, what is Our Lady of Sorrows? What is my predominant defect? Or what's the next thing your son wants me to work on? It's like peeling an onion. Over the course of time, layer after layer, you're going to see things more foundational in your spiritual life, and you're going to understand what your motives were more perfectly. But that takes time, and God doesn't reveal all of it at once. It's little by little. And part of that is is because he doesn't want to cause despair. If we really saw ourselves for who and what we really were, we'd probably just throw our hands up and say, I give up. Okay. But But instead, he wants us to continue working little by little and have confidence. The second component is, and this is something that can tell you where you're at in your spiritual life, 
At that stage where the person enters into the prayer of simplicity, which is hallmarked by the fact that you'll kneel down and you start meditating and you stay fixed on the same thing without moving or looking at it from different points of view for long periods of time. I once knew this one priest. I have no idea where he's at in his spiritual life now. But I actually saw him kneel down and pray. He knelt and did not move his head for five straight hours. I was obviously in the prayer of simplicity. It might have even been mystical contemplation, but he was showing all the hallmarks of someone who is at the level of the prayer of simplicity. Okay. So, but at that stage, there's a very key thing that has to happen at that stage. And it, it, if you do it beforehand, it's actually better. But that, it's at that stage that the relinquishing of the control over our spiritual life has to be given entirely to Christ. You're not perfect. You can't make yourself perfect. And so what you have to do is you have to cede the control over your spiritual advance to Christ and let him have the control. And then he and your position in that is cooperation, not control. You just cooperate. Anytime he sends you a grace, anytime he sends you a suffering, anytime he sends you an opportunity to grow in virtue, you seize that opportunity and you do it. And then you just watch, and you watch for him to give you those graces and those indications. And slowly but surely, he'll lead you along that way. So one of the ways you can come to knowledge about yourself is, how much control do I try and exercise over my spiritual life? If I'm exercising a lot of control, that's usually a sign I'm not very advanced. Whereas if I've gotten to the point where I realize I can't get myself straightened out, I'm a mess. I use the phrase, it's not my monkey. Okay. My, as my sister, my sister, my, my sister uses that phrase. And that's her way to let loose of things and detach from stuff that's just not her responsibility. The fact of the matter is, is that our perfection is not our monkey. It's Christ's monkey. The problem is, you keep trying to take control of his monkey. That's basically what it boils down to. And so, what does that mean? It means that the longer you try and control it, the less he's going to be able to do anything in relationship to it. One time, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you. I'm getting old, so I'm starting to repeat myself. But one of the things that happened during one of the sessions that I had was it was clear that this demon had a particular sensitivity to humiliation, so I was making him do the litany of humility, making him say it. And at a certain stage, all of a sudden, this I think it was a grace, for lack of a better word. I get this grace from Christ, and the grace is just this. It's not a phrase, because it wasn't verbal. It was just an intellectual thing that just said, get out of the way. In other words, what I realized in that moment was, is that two things. One is that in the priesthood, it's very subtle. It's very easy to start drawing people to yourself under the guise that you're doing good for people, rather than drawing them to Christ. But the second component was, in my own spiritual life, I was getting in the way of, the, of my advance because he wasn't in control. Okay. And so this is something that you have to recognize is that you, you have to get out of the way. Quit trying to control his monkey. It's his monkey. And that just means that you have to see to him. You have to, and that means you have to trust him. You have to trust that when he drags you through all these painful things that he knows what he's doing. He's purifying you. Okay. So ask Our Lady 
of sorrows to give you the grace to see. And this is going to be the most reliable form. And the way you're going to know that it's a grace is you're going to all of a sudden just see clearly, yeah, this is, I, this is my problem. I see it, right? And then you'll even notice your, your bad inclinations that you didn't see before. The next is asking your guardian angel. He's got to deal with you all the time. I tell people being a guardian angel is analogous to taking care of a badly trained dog. Because you're constantly trying to get the thing to do stuff and it doesn't comply. Okay, once in a while it'll do it, but I think it has to do more with what it wants to do than actually obey obedience. Right, okay. People complain that they don't have much of a relationship with their guardian angel or that he doesn't help them much. Well, actually he does. It's just that you probably don't notice it. But part of it has to do with our own fault. It's our own fault that we don't have a very good relationship with your guardian angel. Now think of this. Your guardian angel chose his choice. God, when he created him, said, if you want to see me for all eternity, your task is to take care and to guard and to direct this human being, specific human being. And that meant that his, what he was being asked is to love you for God's sake. That's what he was being asked. Because love is willing the good of another. We'll talk a little bit about that more in the next conference. But it means that his first choice was to love you. Then he spent your entire life protecting you, taking care of you, guiding you, interceding for you, doing everything he possibly could to help you to save your soul. And what's been your response? You ignore him. Think of it. No wonder he doesn't talk to you much. Okay. The point being is, even though he does, the point being is, is that... Um, the, if we ask our guardian angel to show us ourselves, to guide us, to give us knowledge about ourselves, to reveal ourselves to ourselves, he, he'll do it. You just have to ask him regularly. One of the most beneficial practices I started doing during Lent is asking my guardian angel to humiliate me interiorly every day during Lent. That was my, one of my penitential practices during Lent. It was brutal. Because every day he would just humiliate me internally, right? And over the course of time, I began to appreciate it. And so I literally asked him at a certain stage, I just said, you know, I don't want this just in Lent. Do it every single day. And this is something that's necessary for us. And part of that is because when he humiliates me, or when your guardian angel humiliates you, he's revealing to you something about yourself. He's showing you there's something wrong here. Because if I'm getting humiliated in relationship to something, and most of the time, most people don't have a clue that this is what's going on internally. Because usually you'll just see yourself and how you're relating to people, and you're just you're like, wow, that's pretty ugly, right? So, but it reveals to you something about yourself. Why is this thing painful? Because I don't have a virtue in that area, or I'm proud in that area. And he keep, you can ask him, keep doing it. So this is a very beneficial practice, asking your guardian angel, reveal my, re, humiliate me and reveal myself to me so that I can come to understand it. Obviously, God can give you an extraordinary grace, but this is extremely rare. 
The saints talk about how the fact that once you start mystical contemplation, that's the first time you have moral certitude that you're in the state of grace. Until then, we don't have absolute moral certitude. We have a pretty good idea if we haven't committed any moral sins since our last confession. But it's not until that point that God reveals to us, you're in the state of grace, which usually means you're doing pretty good. Okay. However, the person's experience of mystical contemplation in the beginning, St. John of the Cross says, is pretty difficult. And so it's not, it's not something that the person's spending a lot of time thinking about, at least that how good they are. Okay. The point being is, is grace, asking your guardian angel, how you relate to the saints, how you relate to God. When I went, I've told other people this story, and I'm not sure if I told you this story, but when I went to, um, to go to Tulsa after Bishop Slattery had asked me to start a society of priests um, that does exorcism work, on the way into Tulsa, as I'm driving in, I said to Our Lady rather flippantly, you know, you could have picked someone better for this job. Now, I was being truthful, but it was the manner in which I said it that was bad. And immediately I got this, I, I, again, I got this grace, sure, that I saw three things instantaneously, which is one of the reasons I don't think it was reasoned out. It wasn't from me, because it was really clear, and it was very, there was a number of different layers to it. The first was, you're right, I could have. Okay, so the f each one of these three was a humiliation, which was good because I needed it. So at least in relationship to her. So there was that. You're right, I could have. And it's true. There's other priests that would have been far better to start this thing than I, than I am. The second thing was, it's through your imperfections, defects, and inabilities that my son's glory will be made manifest. That was there. So, again, the humiliation, seeing that really there's nothing. Now, there's a flip side to that, too. And this, it, it, even though there was a humiliation in it, and what she was revealing to me is, is that throughout the course of the history of this thing getting started and getting going, and even if I'm the superior of it, my defects and everything are going to be part of the process. And I'm going to have to deal with my humiliation through that. But the other component was is I don't have to carry the burden of being perfect to start this order. Okay. The third part was very subtly in the background, and it was only something I didn't realize until afterwards, was very subtly Our Lady was said, don't be curt with me, which is an English way of saying, watch how you approach me and how you talk to me. Which is, and it was very motherly. It wasn't self-serving on her part at all. It was just very motherly. And I realized, I don't approach God. We're supposed to approach him as a father. But that doesn't take away, and Our Lady as a mother, in a very intimate way. But that doesn't change the fact that I ha don't, shouldn't treat them with respect. I always found it humorous in Italy that people would pray to the saints and if they didn't get what they want, they would turn the statue around to punish the saint. I'm like, really? All right. And then one last story about that, and then we'll end there. So I'm in Idaho, and I said to, or no, sorry, I was in Lincoln, Nebraska. I was, I was made the rector of this church. And they had beautiful statuary, and one of them was to St. Anthony. So I said to St. Anthony, I said, find me three 
Find me, because he's good at finding stuff. Find me three votive candle stands, and I'll make sure one of them gets put in front of your statue. The next day, I'm standing outside, and this guy drives up in a pickup, which I'm surprised even ran. And in it is a beautiful votive candle stand. And he says to me, he says, Father, I thought maybe you'd like this. So I said to St. Anthony, hey, that was pretty good. But this has to go to the Blessed Mother. Two more, and one gets put in front of your statue. Three weeks later, I'm standing in a church goods store, and the owner comes up to me out of the blue and just says, Hey, Father, I've already gotten my money out of this votive candle stand. Do you want it? So then I said to St. Anthony, That was pretty good, too. But this one has to go to St. Joseph. One more, and the next one goes to your statue. Well, I get reassigned by my superiors in the meantime, so he doesn't get his votive candle stand. Now, before then... Every time that I would pray to St. Anthony, if the item was recoverable, I always found it within 24 hours, always. Okay. And I would pray to him, and I had nothing. He wasn't responding to my prayers. Now, I'm not going to say he got mad at me or what have you, but the fact of the matter is is that there was, it, the way I was kind of treating him in relationship to the votive candle stands wasn't modest. Okay. So at a certain point when I'm in South Dakota filling in for a priest, I had lost a rosary that I was particularly fond of. So I said to St. Anthony, I'm not taking no for an answer. So I just kept pastoring him, kept pastoring him. Well, about 24 hours later, I'm walking out to carry out the, I'm carrying out the garbage and I drop the garbage off in the, in the garage and I come back out and it literally felt like someone grabbed my head and turned it and right there sitting on the ledge was my rosary. So, right shortly after that, I was assigned to a parish in Idaho, and I said to him, I said, look, I'll make it up to you. Find me a statue of yourself, and I'll make sure it gets put in the niche up in front of the, um, uh, to the entrance to the sa- uh, sacristy, which was a fairly prominent place. Five days later, a couple calls me and says, Father, we have a statue of St. Anthony. Do you want it? Okay. So... Uh, fortunately, he and I are on pretty good terms still. I hope so, because he's, consi- he's also considered a terror of demons, and being an exorcist, he's, he can be very helpful in that regard. But what's my point in this? How we relate to God, how we pray. Are we slothful when we pray? Do we slouch in the thing, or do we kneel if, if we can? Do we, you know, how do we approach him? Are we reverent? You know? And this is something that can kind of tell us a lot about ourselves. Okay. So all of these different things are things that we can use to come to knowledge of ourselves, and I think it can be very helpful. Self-knowledge is necessary, because if you don't know yourself well, you can't advance spiritually. Okay. If you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing. Benedictio Dei Omnipotentis Patris et Filii et Spiritus et Supervos et Maniat Semper. Amen.